My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about the No Wave, because we're cool kids, right, Will? That's right. And I'd like to take you and your DeLoreans back to the late 1970s in New York City. The greatest city in the world is on the verge of bankruptcy. Huge swaths of lower Manhattan are virtually abandoned. And what is one of the things that happens in impoverished cities? They become meccas for artists and art. And in the case of No Wave, it's art that's made by people's bootstraps with very little materials. No technical polish, just putting it out there. And in fact, fuck technical polish. We hate technical polish. Technical polish is bourgeois. And we should point out that we're not going to be talking about the music scene that was happening around this time and punk and all that stuff that was coming out of this whole scene because while it is involved in some of the movies we'll mention, I know nothing about that. (laughs) I don't either, but it is worth mentioning the fact that this was a creative flowering that was happening in like all the arts in the Lower East Side, literature, music, you know, CBGB was a hub of activity. Uh, people like Debbie Harry and Lydia Lunch, especially Lydia Lunch, uh, are major figures in both the film and music scenes. And, you know, in, there's there's art as well. Uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat is in one of the movies you watched this week, Downtown 81. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't need to talk about it too much. It's essentially like a pictorial travelogue through the New York of the time. <laughs> I should say, too, though, that when we're talking about No Wave, I feel like what we're really talking about are two different overlapping movements two two movements or maybe scenes is the correct word that have some of the same players and the second one is kind of an escalation of the first there's no wave and then there's the cinema of transgression no wave is like 1976 to let's say 83 and the cinema of transgression is 83 84 to the late 80s and it's exactly what it sounds like like the cinema of transgression are uh, dirtier and rawer and have more sex and drugs even more sex and drugs than the previous uh, generation of films but then if you talk about something like nick zed's they eat scum that does come in 1979 though that's true Uh, we should talk about they eat scum because i think we both kind of like it but i'll also just say that the people who made no wave films you know like often they were very poor people often they were living in either rent controlled or you know squatting basically in apartments down there some of them went on to become pretty big names amos poe lizzie borden who made a born in flames Jim Jarmusch, who made Permanent Vacation. Catherine Bigelow, who was hanging around that scene at the time. She appears in Born in Flames. Arguably, Susan Seidelman, whose movie Smithereens is, I guess, no wave or no wave adjacent. At Richard Kern of the Cinema of Transgression is now a very famous and uh, well-paid photographer. I would argue, though, that unlike something like the German New Wave or the French New Wave, none of the filmmakers had those big out-of-the-gate successes other than Jarmouche. And that when you talk about them, the um, pool of people was very large, but they often made only like two to three films, maybe one feature that came at the end of their short films, and then they moved into other artistic endeavors. So Jay Hoberman, writing in 1979, wrote... Rejecting the increasingly academic formalism that has characterized the 1970s film avant-garde, as well as the gallery art of video, the Super 8mm New Wave represents a partial return to the rawer values of the underground of the 1960s, Jack Smith, the Kuchar Brothers, early Warhol. 
Like its precursor, The New Underground's technically pragmatic films enact libidinal fantasies, parody mass cultural forms, glorify a marginal lifestyle, and exhibit varying degrees of social contact. And uh, the other quote I want to read is by Roger Ebert in 2011, who reviewed a documentary about No Wave in the cinema of transgression called Blank City. He wrote, Curiously, although none of them deserve to, none of the artists in this film make any claims for the work or express much admiration or enthusiasm for it. If one assembled Cassavetes and his company, you would hear them talking about their ambition to make good and even great films. No one is that bold in Blank City. I saw a number of these films at the time, liked a few. This doc is interesting and worthy, but it is unlikely to send you seeking most of the films sampled in it. That was then, this is now, and it was fun while it lasted. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Ebert, that would be because Cassavetes and the people that he were working for were all actors that were making money, and they could see a future that could lead to bigger and better things, while the people usually in the no-wave movement were uh, living in shitty tenements where they were either couldn't pay the rent, so they were just crashing, and they could see almost no tomorrow. That's why a lot of it is infused with this um, hilarious and crushing nihilism that most of these films end with, you know, the complete collapse of any kind of world order. Yeah, and you know, that Ebert quote, I was thinking about it kind of all week while I was watching these movies because on the one hand, I sort of agree with it. Like, you know, a lot of these movies are of a time and a place and don't particularly hold up. But on the other hand, I kind of want to say like, fuck you, Ebert, because these movies are like, like, who's like, why wouldn't you want to explore this world? You know, like, this isn't just a this isn't just this kind of like, oh, it was a youthful, like fun, fun thing. But we've we've left it behind now. And we've moved on to more adult territory. It's like, these movies are uh, real, and they're raw. And there's a lot of anger and death and decay and in the films. And I, I still find that very compelling today, even in the ones that weren't built to last. And after those impassioned speeches, we should now move on to talk about Nick Zed's They Eat Scum, which features a man in a giant cockroach suit. Yeah, Nick Zed was the founder of the Cinema of Transgression, uh, and he, I guess, started in the No Wave movement. Nick Zed is kind of like if John Waters didn't have a very coherent worldview and if he was not a careerist. So... They Eat Scum is just kind of like puke on the screen. It's just one taboo image after another. And not only is it not technically competent, but the fact that it's not technically competent is a point of pride. Like, you hear Nick Zed say action and cut throughout the movie. I would say that it's probably more energetic and competently filmed than most Andy Milligan products. (laughs) And because it is a comedy, it doesn't have that kind of thudding feeling that a lot of like you know we have no money we're making a comedy film because it's so direct and it's like you know we're gonna show you bestiality not once not twice but thrice and it's only gonna get funnier each time right oh yeah and you know there are a lot of intimations of uh, sexual abuse and incest and uh, i mean it sounds offensive when you say it like that maybe it was offensive at the time but now it like, it's so childish. that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of the No Way stuff, because it does come from a place of, like, you know, young, mid-20s rebellion, you do get a lot of, like, can you even believe that we're doing this? Aren't we edgy? And, you know, a lot of the times when it was received, 
it did feel that edgy. Now, when you watch something like They Eat Scum, it's more like, <laughs> this feels like, a, you know, a Kuchar or even like a Richard Elfman. I'm thinking of like Forbidden Zone style film, but made even grottier than those. I think it was different at the time to watch They Eat Scum because a lot of stuff like this wasn't all that common. I know that John Waters had made Pink Flamingos, but Pink Flamingos, it was a career move. Like it was designed to be like a word of mouth hit. It was designed to get people talking and to launch its auteur to bigger things, you know, just through the shock value. Whereas in They Eat Scum is this middle finger at the idea of upward mobility, you know? I mean, it's packed with like Beach Boy songs. That's why it's never been released because they're never going to get the rights to any of this stuff to be able to put it out in a legal form. I'll just say the plot of it involves a punk band. The plot. <laughs> a, a cool punk band. And we do see a lot of performance footage at CBGB, you know, just to pad the running time a little bit, who go on a killing spree. They launch a nuclear weapon that destroys all of Manhattan. And then 20 years later, their mutant progeny, including a giant lobster, come back to kill them. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. In between those, there are, as I said, lots of just ugly taboo imagery. Like it opens with it opens with a very harmony careenish shot of a guy like spewing just black bile out of his mouth while the Mr. Rogers song, You Are My Friend, You Are Special plays. <laughs> and it climaxes with a giant cockroach man being crushed between elevators and just white jism spewing from his body and splattering a woman that's uh, trapped in front of him. Yeah, it's fun. I liked it. <laughs> yeah, it's energetic. It's in your face. I mean... Uh, it's difficult, like you said, for anyone watching it today to be offended by it because it's something you'd find on like Adult Swim at this point. I guess that has muted its impact somewhat. I did have to put myself in the headspace of imagining watching it at the time, not being exposed to anything like Adult Swim, you know? As we said, Zed was kind of a transitional figure. One of the most famous guys of the first wave, the no wave, was Amos Poe. I know you watched one of his slicker movies, Alphabet City, and I watched one of his earlier films, The Foreigner. I saw one of his movies, you know, maybe 10 years ago called Unmade Beds, which was a French New Wave parody slash tribute, where it was just like, you know, black and white, eight millimeter film with lots of people in in downtown New York speaking French and pretending they were in a French New Wave movie. And like you see Washington Square Park and the Arc there and they call it the Arc de Triomphe. You know, it, like he, he was drawing very heavily from European art cinema. And The Foreigner is about an Eastern European secret agent who comes to America on some vaguely defined mission that we never really find out about. And he just has one bizarre encounter after another with the nightlife of the city. Alphaville, what a weird town it is. <laughs> yeah, it's like Andy Warhol's Alphaville, basically, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's a lot of those static shots of people in the frame kind of babbling at each other, semi-improvised. I think it's beautiful at times. It has some really nice nocturnal shots of New York. I think that when you hear the term no wave, the thing that conjures in your mind is the cinema of Amos Poe. Like, oh yeah, so this is what it is. Kind of stark, slow-moving... Uh, artistic in a very detached fashion, you know, I'm and in a very rough around the edges fashion and with a lot of shots of like a lot of uh, time capsule quality, like the blown up Lower East Side. Like I watched Alphabet City, which was a film that he made in the 80s and was like, 
his push toward uh, more of a commercial angle. And even then, the premise, which is like a drug dealer is forced to burn down the tenement where he grew up and his mom and sister still live, but he decides that he doesn't want to do it, which forces him to go on the run and it takes place over one night. That sounds really exciting, but the way that Poe kind of goes about it is much more languid. He just kind of takes it in. That threat that is right there in the premise doesn't really play out until the last 10 minutes. But in that running time, what he can do is create full mood, like Alphabet City, it might as well be called Neon City with all these buildings, like different colors. This is the New York pre-cleanup, so it's like really shitty and you're going into drug dens and stuff like that. So he got to kind of transpose the vision that he did in his earlier black and white films, even to this one, which it was made for under a million dollars, but it's still kind of like right there in the muck with no real interest to more kind of commercial prospects. There's a love-hate relationship with real quote-unquote movies in in the no way films a lot of them are playing off of hollywood genres as much as they are a defiant middle finger to hollywood and you know suggests that hollywood is this oppressive force that is everything they're against a lot of the no way films feel like disappointed by hollywood or they feel like people people who grew up loving movies you get the sense that Maybe they would want to make those types of movies, but in this particular point in their life, there is no way they could ever do it. So instead of trying to attempt and reaching it like one-tenth of the way, they're going to go in the opposite direction and just spit in its face because that's really all they can do. You know, everybody in the no-wave movement had a band. And, you know, you don't even need to be um, good at playing instruments. You just need to be able to get on stage and just, you know, hit chords. And as long as you're making noise... making an impact that's all that matters one of the movies that i saw this week was rome 78 by james narras which is you know one of those ones that doesn't really stand the test of time it's like you kind of had to be there it was it was an inside joke but it's a sword and sandal parody that's mostly shot in like central park and grant's tomb and you've got you know lydia lunch as the egyptian queen you've got david mcdermott as caligula and he's running around central park going i am god and you've got uh, john lurie is in there as john lurie they just call him john lurie but he's got a toga and they're all like chewing gum and they're screwing up takes in the middle of them and it's it's just like what andy warhol was doing 10 years before it's kind of like an addendum to the no wave movement itself it's like oh once you've seen the other films now look at this crazy thing that they did can you believe lydia lunch who was doing all this crazy shit in these other movies is also dressing up like a roman and making a mock you know demille style epic isn't that crazy like you said you had to be there a lydia lunch movie that i actually kind of liked was beauty becomes the beast by vivian dick in 1979 which is this abstract experimental film where she goes back and forth between being a five-year-old toddler you know probably an abused toddler and then a tough teenager and it's just this assemblage of images you see lydia as a child and by the way it's the the adult lydia playing a child but you see her playing with dolls and then you see her as an adult walking on the beach or walking around the shitty streets of the lower east side and you see ugly footage from the tv and i I don't know if i can really explain it it's clearly like a working through of trauma but i found it a very direct and a very powerful experience beauty becomes the beast and i think certain of the films from from this movement are They're very intense experiences because they take you into the minds of seriously strange people. 
you know, either the characters or the filmmakers, they're these direct transmissions from their brains. Well, just look at a film like You Are Not I, which was directed by Sarah Driver from 1981. And unlike all the movies we mentioned before this, this is not one that's trying to be too in your face because it's essentially like cataloging the journey of a woman that at the beginning, you're not quite sure what is going on. And it's slowly revealed that she escaped from a mental institution. And now her family and sister want to send her back but she will do anything to keep that from happening until something happens near the end that flips everything that we've seen on its head. Yeah, and it's funny. And when you describe it that way, it sounds almost like a thriller. Mm -hmm, But it's not. You know, what I would compare it to is something like Messiah of Evil, if people have seen that horror film. But, you know, one of the things that I think keeps You Are Not I from being like a hit, like something like Eraserhead, I saw somebody write on Letterboxd, like, can you imagine if this movie played all the time at midnight and how unsettling it would have been other than something like Eraserhead is that the iconography of it is not in your face. There's nothing you can like put on a poster and people will be like, oh yeah, that Midnight movie. And you know, other than the work of Nick Zed, I think that's kind of the case for all the No Wave movement that, you know, a lot of it, we keep saying this, you had to be there in the moment. It was for the people that were in these situations. It never kind of broke through other than a few, you know, people like uh, Jarmusch into more art house moneyed people because they were Roger Ebert looking down and going, oh yeah, you're having your fun, but let's get to the real movies now. By the way, speaking of uh, getting to the real movies, why don't we uh, fast forward to the cinema of transgression and talk a little bit about Richard Kern's Fingered, which is an important movie for me in a weird way. Um, I'm, I'm not saying it's great or anything. Uh, well, maybe I am saying it's great. I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you my my history with this movie. Uh, I went to see this movie about 10 years ago at the Anthology Film Archives. I didn't know anything about Richard Kern, except that I think he's like maybe a John Waters type. And it was this is a like a 25 minute movie, and it was on a retrospective of a bunch of his short films. It really knocked me out while I was watching it. I don't know how to describe the experience, except it was like being on the Gravitron at a theme park ride, you know, where you get stuck to the wall and you can't get off the wall. I felt like that way in my seat. Yeah, and I don't know, like maybe, may, again, maybe he had to be there in that particular moment. Maybe the fact of sitting in a room with a bunch of people is what made you feel really uncomfortable when it came to watching it all. Like, I can't believe I'm experiencing this in public with strangers. Yes, definitely that. And also, you know, in a theatrical context where it's a big screen and, you know, you hear uh, Lydia uh, yelling and screaming in, in full stereo. I mean, we should sum up what this movie is, which is Lydia Lunch and... Uh, some guy. Well, she she's a phone sex operator and she... And uh, I guess she decides to let him come over. And uh, that's that's when the titular act happens. And uh, fr- from then on, they become a Bonnie and Clyde type. As a movie, it's like if you were in high school and you wanted to shock people, this is what you would do. You know, people are saying fuck every, you know, two words to the point of I felt like it's 25 minutes long. Almost like, all right, I got it. Like, <laughs> And there's some like very ugly hardcore sex in it there's you know a lot of sexual assaults and violence i was kind of shocked of how slick it was um you know kern is always going for like god's eye views of things giving it an almost like 
I don't know, detached feeling. I'm sure someone has written their thesis on like, Kern looks down from God's uh, POV to let the audience know that they are in control. They are watching and continuing with this. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason he became a successful commercial photographer. But, you know, thinking about why else I found this movie compelling at the time and still find it kind of compelling. You know, I've heard I've heard Lydia Lunch talk in interviews about what what a incredibly personal movie this was for her you know she i guess she wrote it yeah she wrote it and uh she made another very personal film with him called right side of my brain both of which are about sexual abuse and uh the way cycles of abuse continue and sex as an exchange of power and dominance and you know i i don't know I don't know the extent to which I identify with or personally connect with these themes, but I I find the movie a kind of like I find it moving just on the level of watching watching artists work through this stuff without without trying to pretty it up. It's like this is this is pure ugliness uh, and it's an ugliness that like is plaguing these people and they have to get it up on the screen and it doesn't matter what you think about it. Yeah, it's out in the world. You're sitting in this audience. You're a young Will hoping for some John Waters yucks and this is going to assault you. <laughs> and that's the other thing. I didn't know what to anticipate. I thought I thought uh, the Richard Kerr movies would be funny. I just imagine you sitting there. You're like jaw just dropping open as it plays, looking around going like, does everybody else know what this is? That is almost exactly what it felt like. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, as a cinema then that works i think that the actual impact that they wanted to impose on the viewer you were the perfect subject for that yeah i guess so so i mean i don't know if i would recommend fingered to the outside world but uh, all i can say is at age 22 it worked for me and because it's just like a surface level kind of skim of this for anybody listening there's so much to explore in this especially filmmakers a lot of women filmmakers as well that were part of this movement i feel like in a way that you never really hear about like the french new wave like french new wave agnes varda that's all people ever talk about. Here you have so many different filmmakers who some of them continue to, you know, move on to stuff like... Uh, Susan Seidelman, who made Smithereens, went on to make Desperately Seeking Susan and other films you've heard of. Smithereens is great, by the way. I mean, I, I don't know, if does it count as no wave? It's certainly set in that milieu. Maybe it's just a little too slick. I think it counts as no wave, right? It's kind of like... Um, almost like an inside Lewin Davis type movie, but if Lewin Davis were a complete piece of shit. <laughs> I mean, Lewin Davis is a complete piece of shit. Yeah, but, but... if you were supposed to think he was a complete piece of shit. <laughs> and, you know, the No Wave movement, what's great about it is that it is a complete, like, equal playing field, even though they're like, film costs money. Like, it's tough to do this stuff, but they push pulled it together like when you look at the french new wave oh yeah francois truffaut got to make his movie because he married a woman whose father like gave him a giant loan and like worked for a film production company that's how he got to make his picture before we leave uh i'll just read a little bit from the cinema of transgression manifesto by nick zad he published this in his underground zine the underground film bulletin which is uh highly collectible and i recommend it if you can find a copy of those somewhere he says, we propose that all film schools be blown up and all boring films never be made again. We propose that a sense of humor is an essential element discarded by the doddering academics and further, that any film which doesn't shock isn't worth looking at. All values must be challenged. Nothing is sacred. Everything must be questioned and reassessed in order to free our minds from the faith and tradition. Intellectual growth demands that risks be taken and changes occur in political, sexual, and aesthetic alignment, no matter who disapproves. We propose to go beyond 
beyond all limits set or prescribed by taste, morality, or any other traditional value system shackling the minds of men. We pass beyond and go over boundaries of millimeters, screens and projectors, to a state of expanded cinema. And here's my movie, Geek Maggot Bingo. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit of a tough set. He's too slick. He doesn't have that, like, you know, propulsive energy that, you know, Super 8 filmed off of a screen gives you you know i was listening to a podcast interview with nick said earlier today and he was talking about geek maggot bingo and he said that uh he was stupid enough to think that geek maggot bingo he might actually make some money off of he thought it could be a midnight movie like john waters and that's and obviously he didn't make any money but i think that owes to why it's a little bit a little bit diluted and a little campier and a little less fun than they eat scum anyway that's the cinema of transgression that's no wave and uh roger ebert tells you not to check it out so you should don't listen to grandpa fuck him so uh do we have any letters this week yes we do our first letter is from dustin bullock and it goes hey guys A relatively new listener here, I have spent the last few months listening to your back catalog and recently joined the Patreon to listen to those episodes as well. I I can't imagine someone hanging out with us for like, you know, hours every day. As someone who has had a mild interest in film and filmmaking since high school, but I have generally only exposed myself to what could be considered normie cinema, your exploration and celebration of less popular and transgressive films and filmmakers has been enlightening and entertaining. The knowledge and passion you both have for these subjects, as well as your chemistry together, comes across clearly in each episode and makes for an enjoyable listening experience. Well, thank you very much. Well, I disagree with every point. (laughs) As a result of listening to your podcast, I have started looking for more films outside of the popular realm to watch. I just recently saw Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla in Detour. Despite being schlock, I had a smile on my face most of the way through Brooklyn gorilla and also quite enjoyed Detour. Ah, that makes, that brings a smile to my face. (laughs) You know, Justin, this is what I always dreamed of. When I was uh, a younger man watching Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla for the first time, I, I was saying to myself, I I wish I had the power to tell other people to watch this movie. Certainly I wasn't going to get my friends to watch it. And now I have that platform. (laughs) For someone to say it brought a smile to their face, that is the best result you could ask for from someone who is not intimately familiar with the career of William Bodine, uh, Jerry Lewis, and Sammy Petrillo. I I wish Sammy Petrillo were still alive to hear that he made someone smile. Hey, look, he's looking down from heaven. He's looking down from heaven and he's going, hey, Dookie, hey, Dookie. Yeah, making a um, offensive face, I'm sure. Uh, The letter continues. Thanks for making my daily commute more enjoyable. Keep up the good work. P.S. If I may make an episode recommendation, I would love to hear you guys discuss the great Canadian icon, John Candy. I have, as I'm sure most listeners do, a soft spot for his films, both good and bad. Do you have any experience with John Candy other than being Canadian and having to experience him all the time? Well, I mean, I love John Candy. Who doesn't? Wait, did you guys do Canadian Bacon on Michael and Us? Uh, Yeah, very early on because that was directed by Mr. Michael Moore himself. Oh, that's right. But yeah, I mean, John Candy, when I was a kid, I used to watch Uncle Buck a lot. Between Mrs. Doubtfire, right? I'm not alone. Many people liked Uncle Buck. Oh, I'm sure. I... John Candy's so charming in that movie. He is. And like, it's not that great a movie. It's really not. It's not really all that funny. Well, actually, I I should take that back. Uh, The scene where he makes the giant pancake. uh, Gold. Very comedy gold. And, you know, I also loved Spaceballs growing up. He was in lots of stuff I liked growing up. You know, the unfortunate thing is he made like mostly bad movies. Uh, He's great on SCTV. 
It's too bad he didn't live long enough to make some better films. I mean, he made Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Oh, perfect how could I film. forget? I mean, yeah. that is a perfect film, yeah. And that's all you need. The film wouldn't work as well as it does without John Candy's performance in it. No, absolutely. I mean, that scene when uh, Steve Martin yells at him and then he does the oh. I-, I like me speech... I mean, it gives me chills just thinking about it. He was a great actor. I am literally like, my the hairs on my arms are like lifting right now. Just you mentioning and me thinking about it. And what people forget about that scene is it comes like 25 minutes into the movie as well. Oh man, yeah. It's not the big climax and it just kind of evolves from there. Yeah, so good. Yeah, uh, John Candy, I'm a fan. I like him. Me and you, Will, we got to do like... Spaceballs very soon, either on a Patreon episode or Mel Brooks episode. Let's do a Mel Brooks episode. That would actually be a fun subject. Yeah, let's get one in before, you know, the Reaper comes from before him. (laughs) We didn't even talk about when Carl Reiner passed away. Very sad. You know, he lived a full life. (laughs) Yeah, we all like Carl Reiner. Who doesn't? All right. So uh, thank you very much for that letter, uh, Dustin. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Well, speaking of transgressive artists, uh, we are talking for the very first time ever in over 200 episodes, in over 150 Patreon episodes about Mr. Roman Polanski. That's right. We watched The Tenant. You know, if you, with shame in your eyes, bought that new Shout Factory uh, Blu-ray that came out, join us as we discuss it, because we both bought it as well. And we will be... Uh, taking all of your Patreon money and sending it directly to Roman Polanski, care of Paris, France. I'm sure the postmaster will be able to find it. As per usual, you can become a Patreon subscriber and listen to that and our entire back catalog for only $5 a month. And that's at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. What are we doing next week? A long time ago, we did something that we never did before and have never done since, which was a part one of an episode. And that was about Jess Franco. And we promised we would eventually do part two because this man's career was so vast, it could not be contained to a single episode. So I think we ended it at around like, what, 1972, 1970, somewhere around there? I think maybe before Female Vampire. Before Lena Romay entered the picture. Yeah, that's right. So like Female Vampire, I don't know if that's the exact moment. I think she was in some movies before. But in my mind, that's always like, you know, once that collaboration started, his films kind of changed. And by changed, I meant got, I mean, got cheaper and even more porno ear And better, I mm, think. More interesting uh, from yeah. a purely artistic perspective. <laughs> I mean, if you want a guy who really just like, you know, free associative writing on film, dumping whatever was in his head, you know, like improvising basically a hundred movies. That's uh, Jess Franco right there. So, I mean, I'm sure we'll watch Female Vampire. I'm not sure which other ones we should watch. It's so vast. I'm a fan of Night Has a Thousand Desires. Have you ever seen that one? Uh, Probably a long time ago. I went through like a really obsessed Jess Franco phase and they all just blend together. There's so many movies where like naked people are just walking around an airy seaside manor. This weird architecture. And you're like, wait, is this the most dangerous game film? And I mean, you got to dust off those Blu-rays. I'm sure you picked up from Severin recently, right? Like, um, I don't remember. Isn't it like the sweetest set? or something like that uh, shining sex shining uh, yeah sex. they yeah. they haven't arrived yet but they are on did route. you buy the retitling of the fall of the house of usher or whatever that the revenge of the house of usher neurosis uh yes i did and oh my you, god that is like the worst jess franco <laughs> they changed the title just to fool people into buying it well you know the thing about jess franco is like 
Uh, he he inspires obsession in people. He he drives the viewer mad. And we'll get into that next week, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. We're going to get deep into that. I'm going to pull that Stephen Thrower, Jess Franco, Volume 2 book off, off the shelf. I'm going to read it all. All of it. All right. So that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, another month, another Criterion release announcement. That's right. The uh, the can the canon of canons, the continuing series of classic, important and contemporary films has bestowed a crown on a new crop of movies. Uh, and if you if you like those movies, you won. They have ascended to heaven and you were right. And look, we kid. I like Criterion. You like Criterion. We all do. They they put out a quality product. It's like we did a whole episode on the subject, right? That like they canonize things and you you say that as a joke but my god you look on twitter and it's like put this out on blu-ray and i like look at it and i'm like that's already out on blu-ray why does criterion need to take this it? month they announced that they're going to put the irishman on blu-ray and it's one of a number of netflix films they, they're going to put on blu-ray because they struck a deal with netflix so they put out roma already they put out marriage story and now it's time for the irishman and I saw some people excited about it, and I thought, why? <laughs> like, Because Netflix could take it away at any moment. Well, they won't, because it's a Netflix movie. Aren't you happy it's coming to physical media? I guess I'm happy it's coming to physical media, but also it's like, okay, first of all, it's going to be very expensive for something that is right there on Netflix. When I see people like really excited that uh, Criterion is releasing The Irishman, I think, why are you excited? Because first of all, like you saw the Irishman less than a year ago. So you, you don't need you don't need to see it again immediately. It's not like this is an undiscovered classic. This is you're like you're excited because the official canon has given a mark of approval to a movie you like. To a Martin Scorsese movie. It's like it doesn't need that mark of approval. But at least Criterion is coming in and they packed in so many new special features, right? Well, well you know, there are some new special features, but it also has like that documentary about digital de-aging that was on Netflix. It's like, oh great. Like even even the features I've already I've already seen. I feel like we've talked about it on this podcast before. I talk about it a lot on the Bay Street Video podcast. But it feels like Criterion is kind of resting on their laurels the last few years. Like the booklets turn into these like ugly fold-out posters you have to open up. They completely ditch doing commentaries. A lot of just like single interviews on people. Sometimes nothing. Like I got the Paris Belongs to Us Blu-ray, the Jacques Rivette film, and there's like no sp- special features and it's like he was one of the like leading french new wave figures you couldn't get like someone to do like a critical commentary nick pinkerton did a commentary on la religieuse his second film that kino put out what's going on at criterion i'm sorry you know what i like kino more than i like criterion now uh you know who i like better than criterion arrow video and i know that we both got the same thing this week oh yeah we got the Gamera box set. Oh, man. Gamera, everybody's favorite giant flying turtle. You know, Criterion put out a great Godzilla box set last year, but Criterion was hampered by the fact they were dealing with Toho. I would say it's amazing that the Criterion box set exists. The design, too big for my taste. Too big, but the art is, is beautiful. beautiful. Special features, not very good. Transfers, awful. 
but that's because it's the Toho transfers. They couldn't really do anything. Toho had them completely shackled. Like they couldn't do audio commentary tracks, for instance, because Toho is often vetoed. Yeah, that. they couldn't even port over the classic media audio commentaries. And the transfers that they actually put on the Criterion set are not good. They have like, you can see the line uh, that they used to glue the cuts together because when it was scanned, it was misframed. And Criterion knew this. And they said to Toho, like, we'll do new scans. And Toho said, nope. You can't do it. I mean, I've told this story before that uh, Toho, I wanted to show Godzilla Final Wars in Toronto. And Toho's like, you have to show our beta copy. We'll only allow you to show that. And you have to like project subtitles. And we only got to show the Blu-ray because the director stepped in and said, oh, no, I know one of the guys doing this. Just let him show the Blu-ray. Like it had to go that high up the chain. I also hear that Godzilla movies are among the most expensive for theaters to license. Well, I don't think they can do it. It costs like a ridiculous amount of money. So nobody does it. But I guess whoever owns Gamera said, go wild, uh, Arrow. And after that whole like opening, if Criterion for some reason had done a Gamera set, it would never be as nice as this Arrow one. You're right. Because, you know, as wonderful as Criterion's Ingmar Bergman box set was, uh, did it have a comic book uh, in it? A bound (laughs) hardcover comic book collection of all the Gamera comic books. I mean, come on. Not only that. A book as well of newly written materials uh, about the Gamera film. So like the Gamera box set has two books in it. That is wild. And also every Gamera film. I mean, everyone. New scans of the, you know, Japanese cuts and the American cuts as well. And there's commentaries on all the movies, even Gamera the Super Monster, which is just a clip show. It's so beautiful. I mean, I I weep just thinking about it. It may be the best Blu-ray release of all time. I don't think it could be topped. Like I was looking at the um, new Gamera movies. And I guess in Japan, they had done a bunch of special features and they just ported them all over. (laughs) There's like a, I watched a 90 minute documentary. It's part one of three of just interviewing every crew member that worked on the Gamera films, like the assistant director of the visual effects department. And what's fascinating about that is that like, They'll be very honest about their experiences. One guy's like, oh, yeah, I worked on the first one. They didn't hire me back for the second and third one. I guess I just didn't do a good job or they didn't like me enough. And it's like, ah, you never get this stuff in documentaries. So good. So what we're trying to say is Aero Video, you should send us free stuff. Criterion, also send us free stuff because we'll probably be a little bit more positive. That's right. You'll get back in our good books. And I would just say to the people out there, like, you know, uh, Criterion is, is not really a legitimate canon. Uh, no, I, I think it's not. they're they're running on fumes uh, when they're when they're putting uh, all the Netflix movies on their label. And also, you know, they don't even have the best covers. Anymore. And even Massacre Video have better covers. I'm, and you, you want us on 88, 88 films. films are just knocking it out of the park with their releases. The thing is, Criterion is a victim of its own success here because they set the template for that. They were the ones who put the spine numbers. They're the ones who came up with the idea of those like already you know sort of abstract painted covers and we should say like back in the day criterion would have all the special features that we're talking about but i think at a certain point they went like eh, people will still buy it and we don't have to like put the book with vampire or stuff like that yeah it costs money too they'll charge the same price it'll cost them less for them to do it you're buying the brand it's like how most cars have all the same equipment as a rolls royce but you know you're buying it for that that little rr logo 